I think a lot of people don't realize the tooling cost involved in, in certain aspects of designing and creating a product. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to use big brand strategies when starting a smaller business, the hidden six-figure costs in manufacturing, and how to use Facebook ads to introduce a new product to the marketplace. Before we get into our show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Shopify App Store. Shopify apps help you easily customize and add features to your store to make it your own. The App Store hosts over 4,000 apps built specifically for Shopify businesses. Shopify developers all over the world built these apps to help you save time and unlock a range of new features, from showing your Instagram feed on your store to offering loyalty rewards and more. Check out shopify.com slash app store for the latest Shopify apps. Today I'm joined by Kerpal Barrage from Stay60. Stay60 produces reusable water bottles that combine a sleek Scandinavian-inspired aesthetic with intuitive design innovation and was started in 2017 in Basel, London. Welcome, Kerpal. Hey, Felix. So the idea behind this business started with your own experience with the dehydration. So tell us more about that. Yeah, it was a funny experience. So um, it was just a routine blood, che- uh, blood test, just kind of a, a usual checkup that you need to kind of you know make sure that everything's i suppose working correctly i suppose you get to a certain age when you're over you know 30 years of old years years of age and you kind of need to just check that things are ticking along okay so um just yeah it was a case of um the nurse not being able to take um any blood from my veins um during a routine blood test and which i thought was really strange and quite worrying um but apparently it was just a case of just severe dehydration and she's like Look, it, it can happen quite a lot so it's more common than we realized um and actually um it happened to my dad my father as well strangely um so it kind of it it urged me to kind of obviously hydrate more regularly um but that was through single-use plastic so the big kind of you know evian bottles and and things like that um until just a bit of research actually i think it was just something i saw on tv where it it basically inspired me to look a bit deeper into the kind of um, environmental impacts of single-use plastic water bottles so then i started searching for a reusable bottle but at the time there really wasn't anything that i could find that was that really matched the kind of aesthetic that i look for in the accessories that i carry so i'm i'll be honest i'm quite fussy um about the type of things that I carry in terms of accessories, the type of clothes that I wear, I want them all to be. It's not a case of designer labels. It's just that they need to be designed well and last long. So we, I couldn't find anything that really appealed to a male audience, number one, um, and really had the design kind of principles, the look and the quality that I would, would make me want to carry it on a daily basis, which I found really important. So um, I kind of just... I think I just went to my brother and said, I think we can do a better job here. Um, I think we've probably got the skill set to actually really have a go at this market and create something really good. So we just, yeah, we just just went for it. And luckily, that's kind of, I suppose, how we started the business back in 2017. Mm. Yeah, can you describe, I mean, obviously this is an audio format, so can you do a little bit, can you, can you help us out by describing a little bit about what the bottle looks like? How, how does it stand out on the shelves? 
Yeah, so it's it's very different. So I, I suppose, firstly, um, I would say around 90% of the water bottles that you see are off the shelf from China. So they would have been designed a good few years ago by Chinese designers and engineers in China. What happens is people from you know, other countries will then just buy them off the shelf, not design anything. So that's something we would never do. We, we started from scratch. Um, we looked at the other products and said, actually, we can make it better through a lot of different features. But in terms of the actual aesthetic, it's very sculptural. Um, it's got a very distinct uh, shape to it. Um, a lot of that's down to it's, it has a carry collar, we call it, which is a carry strap that wraps around the neck of the bottle, um, which has got a patented design itself, which is um, sort of really important for us about because it gives it real its real form. Um, also, it has um, a special cap that we patented as well. So um, the way that works is you kind of semi-twist the top half of it and you can drink straight through it and it regulates um, the liquid flow. So it allows your body to hydrate more effectively because it, you can't gulp, gulp, gulp. Because if, you, if you're gulping and chugging water and you're taking it down too quickly, all that will happen is your kidneys think that they are drowning and you will just have to go to the toilet and it will just, it doesn't allow your body to absorb. So it just lets out all the liquid. So there's a lot of different fun- added functional benefits, that, you know, the, the cap and the way it allows you to hydrate and st- drink straight through it, the, the carry collar the actual kind of sculptural property of it, but also the way you can carry it. You can carry it with a full hand. Um, you can carry it in a certain way for running. You can carry it from different, you can grab it from different angles. So it's really kind of intuitive instead of just a usual finger loop where you can just use your finger and kind of swing it. Um, also the kind of, you know, it's got really high end, high grade paint to it. We color match all the components. So it's really, we take ages color matching everything. Um, again, we thought that that was something that, within the market we're in, people don't take enough care and attention and, and, and kind of thought about, whereas we actually take a lot of inspiration from kind of high-end audio brands like the kind of uh, Bang & Olufsen's, the Sonos's and things like that, and even Urban Ears where, and, and things like Common Projects, which are a really great European um, footwear brand, where if you look at the care and attention to everything on that product, from the color matching to the materials used, to the finish and the quality that's that's our inspiration and that's the kind of that's that's the process we put behind um our bottles and our range mm. so you mentioned too that you and your brother look at each other and said that you think that you have the skill set to bring this to the market what, what, what are your backgrounds so i've got around uh 14 15 years in advertising um so media strategy so also creative agencies media agencies so i've worked on clients such as some of these will be UK-based. Um, so um, Virgin Media, Barclays Bank, Hendrix Gin, um, Sailor Jerry's Rum, and qu- quite a lot of the kind of big-tier brands. So it would be a case of understanding. So we would get a brief. We understand their audience with the tools that we have. This is your target consumer. This is how we speak to them. This is where we speak to them. These are the touch points, and here's your budget. So we would basically, my job would be taking that client brief, really get into the kind of nitty-gritty of consumer market um product literally everything to say here's a strategy here's best to kind of go out there and um and market your new proposition your new brand or your new product so starting a company and starting a brand it couldn't have been any better grounding for me personally i kind of thought if i'm doing it for other people um if i'm any good really i should be able to do it for myself um my brother raj has a financial systems background 
So he was, um, he worked for a company that used to print money in the UK. Um, and he was, um, like a C, not CFO, but he was head of financial systems there. So he's got a finance background. I've got more of the kind of creative strategy background. Um, so it marries quite well. I leave him to do the numbers and then he leaves me to do the fancy stuff and it, it kind of works quite nicely. Yeah. Now, what, what, when your background in, in, in marketing advertising, what are some of the biggest lessons that you learn in that industry that can apply to much, you know, smaller businesses and startups, people that are just getting started for the first time? I'm assuming certain things are probably going to be much more uh, effective than others when you're talking about, you know, larger budgets and bigger scale operations compared to a smaller company. But what are some of the kind of big brand strategies or tactics that people can employ when they are just starting their own smaller businesses? It's a good question. There's, I mean, it's it's very different because you're not dealing with ridiculous amounts of budgets. I think the key thing is start from the consumer, understand the consumer, do all of your consumer research, whether it's you know using things like SurveyMonkey, you know speaking to your friends, um, speaking to anyone that might use your product to get a real idea of the market, what they're using, how they use it, um, and what they think of the current products out there. I'd say. It, a key part of my previous job was the insight part of things. I think the insight part of launching a business is really, really important because um, without that insight, you're not going to create a great product um, or the right product to be able to get that product market fit with if you haven't done the kind of groundwork in terms of consumer research. A lot of the campaigns that I worked on were big budgets so they would be tv a hell of a lot of kind of digital advertising a lot of out of home some radio um obviously things were shifting more digitally a hell of a lot socially but I think a lot of the, I think a lot of brands now even the bigger brands most of their budget will be social uh, and digital based um, especially now in the current climate I think it's just the power of social and how you can really utilize that and leverage it for you know, your benefit as a brand, really. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned the market and consumer research. The insight is really important early on, maybe even before you even have your product that exists. And obviously, you created this product to fulfill your own need to to design a better functioning uh, bottle that was, you know, sustainable and also fits your aesthetic. But were you able to to, to expand the research beyond you know, yourself, or maybe your friends and family to figure out what the market might be interested in? Uh, yeah, so... Um, we did some kind of, um, survey monkey stuff with mainly a lot of my kind of friends within, um, the industry that I was in. Um, but also within our design team as well and kind of their friends and, and people like that. So, um, a lot of it was looking at what's out there in the market. Um, why it, they weren't great in terms of the products. There are some very good products, but there are some very bad products as well. So it was a lot of, a lot of it is looking at what's already there and kind of how we can improve it, then speaking to the consumers to see how they would use it and how we can think we, we could add certain elements to the product to make it more of an accessory that would they would want to carry daily around with them. What makes it a better product for them to use more regularly, so to hydrate more, but also use less single-use plastic because we are adding those bits that they really want, a key to them carrying it more often, I would say. 
Got it. And I want to call out that this differentiation that you're making, which is to uh, first look at the, the existing products on the marketplace and then think to yourself, what can be improved? And the other approach is to kind of go out and, and, and survey your consumers or your, your, your prospective consumers and understand more about their needs and wants. And you sound like, sound like you said that you focus mostly on uh, basically looking at the competition, looking at, at what exists today. What were certain things that you were, you were looking for in terms of uh, areas that you wanted to improve and how did you actually make those improvements? Oh, a few things. So uh, a lot of the stainless steel bottles that you see on the market um, are quite clunky. Um, they, it's actually, they're not that intuitive in the way that you can drink through them. Um, so a key one for us is, so we didn't want to, so what was really important, number one, is making a commercially viable product on a number of levels. So um, it needs to be a commercially viable retail price. So for us in the UK, it's £35, which is an expensive point, but it isn't a £95 water bottle because what we found is the tech side of things wasn't needed. So there are smart water bottles that are great, but the people that we spoke to were like, actually, I don't want to spend that much on a water bottle. What I want is something that, number one, looks great, feels great in my hand. So that's number one that we had to look at. Really great, stunning visuals, really distinct and a really design-led product. So it looks in a, it looks a certain way. Um, number two, it's easier to hydrate from. You don't have to take a big bulky cap off all the time and keep hydrating. Um, so we've kind of, I suppose we've eliminated that by the little semi-twist that allows you to drink straight through the cap. Also, it needed to be perfect for both water and, uh, and coffee or tea. So a lot of times if you have like a sip cap, it's either a straw or like a little hole. So the problem with that is nobody really wants to drink coffee from a, a, a straw. It's, it's, it's just a bit weird. It's not kind of, it's not a great user experience. So we wanted to create a cap that would allow, you know, it's great for water hydration, is great for coffee and tea as well. Um, and then we've got the, you know, the extra layers of insulation, which makes it, you know, keeps everything super fresh and super cold and super hot. So it needed to be perfect for both water, coffee and tea to make kind of, you know, the one bottle that you keep with you all the time. So you really invest in it. So key to that was the cap, really. Um, and then, like I said, the aesthetics are really, really important as well. Got it. Okay, so now you knew all these features that you wanted to to add to to improve on. Tell us about the the design process. Once you had those ideas in your head, how do you actually turn it into a design that could be produced? So when we originally launched um, in 2017, it was always um, a case of this is our MVP. This is the minimum viable product that we can release with the budget that we have. So it's a very good product, but with the budget we have, it's a hell of a lot of tooling. So it was making a simpler version of what we really wanted. So then we went about with our um, design team that we're really close with, because um, basically my friend owns a design team. So um, we kind of work really closely, They're almost an extension of our team. It was a case of, okay, here are the kind of visuals that we like from other brands, and they're not actually brands within our market. It's taking inspiration from them and saying, how do we then kind of, create that in a water bowl really so a lot of them were very scandinavian very minimal that's the kind of look that we want and then we kind of you know put pen to paper and started creating that with the team um to come up with a few options to start with uh, and then we kind of you know we narrowed those down 
um, certain functions on there as well that we we added. So then um, we kind of came up with a, a design that we really liked and thought would fit the brief. And then it was um, speaking to manufacturers in China to see uh, what was possible, what the tooling costs would be, which is where all the money really is, which is a really expensive kind of outlay. Um, and then taking it from there, but what we found, um, because it was a simpler approach for our first product, it made it easier to speak to manufacturers in China for the first time compared to the second product, which is far more technically advanced, the one that you see now, um, where we spoke to a few manufacturers and they just couldn't produce certain elements. So um, it's, yeah, there's a lot to be said for a simpler product. It makes it easier to manufacture. Um, but, you know, that that was the brief to start with, but the brief now was um, a very different approach and a very different busy market to create a much better product. So, yeah, it's it was designing something and then taking it to, to certain manufacturers to see, you know, the cost of it. And then once we had the right manufacturer, the right costs, it was a case of then uh, prototyping, tooling, uh, and then manufacturing on mass. Got it. Because I want to break this down a bit. So you first started off by working with the design team that where your input was just to bring them essentially designs from other industries and said, how do we replicate this in a in, in a water bottle? So what was that iteration process like? Like how long did it take from the time that you brought a you know, a bunch of photos of of other products or other products that you want to replicate in the bottle? And, and then like you mentioned, some 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 audio companies that you want to replicate their their design. How long does that take between you kind of having an idea of elements of other products that you want to put into yours and then actually having something that you can see with your own eyes? Oh, I'd say the first thing that you would see with your own eyes is um, obviously the sketches. So that would take, honestly, that would probably take a good two or three months if you're doing it right. And then from there, it's kind of the 3D visuals. Um, that would That can take another maybe two months, then it's prototyping. So what we did is a rapid prototype in the UK first um, to 3D printing. That would be another couple of weeks. But then um, what we did this time around is do is create a really great prototype with our manufacturer. That took around a month to create that first prototype. That prototype then wasn't 100%. We had to go back and get certain functional elements right that took another two months so this uh it's a very it's a long process if you want to get it right it really is a long process so um yeah from initial i suppose idea um down to getting that prototype the the prototype want to sign off was probably around eight months Mm. So you mentioned the first the first product was rapid prototyping with 3D printing. What what's the kind of benefit of doing it? I guess maybe pros and cons of going with 3D printing for your first prototype instead of just going straight to the manufacturer, which is what it sounded like you you did for the second version. Uh, yeah, so that was purely for sizing um, and to to see because the. The product is so sculptural, kind of how it would look, because it was so quick and simple for us to do. It, it, we thought, why not? Let's check this. Let's sense check um, the 3D drawings that we have, the approach to just see how it looks. So the 3D printing, there was no um, functionality. Um, the cap didn't work, for example, and the strap, for example, didn't come off. Um, so it was more just the look of it, and it was just to say, yes, this looks right. So what we did when we first did the 3D printing, what we could see straight away, the strap was too big. 
So that allowed us to recalibrate, change the sizing, take it in a little bit before we sent everything to the uh, to the manufacturer. So it kind of cut out um, that process further down the line, um, which is what would have just happened. So it was just kind of almost a sense check with the, the quick 3D printing more than anything yeah. else. So during all these phases between the sketches to the to the um, to the mockups to the 3D printing prototypes, do you put this in the hands of any potential consumers or target customers? Is there any testing that goes goes on during these stages? I would say the first part of consumer testing is when we have yeah a prototype from the manufacturer where there is some functional elements. So. That was only, I would say that was kind of almost an alpha test where it was a case of people within um, our circle um, were testing it. And so it only, it was probably around five or six people. So the design team, um, us as founders, also um, just people that we're close to, just to kind of sense check, what do you think? How does it look? How does it function? Um, I suppose we've got a kind of a, a tight knit group of people that we really trust uh, and we really um, rely on to give us good sound opinions because they have very similar kind of tastes. Um, the aesthetics that they like are very similar to us. The kind of brands that they they really like are, are very similar to what we like. So I suppose we have some you know trusted people that we can always go to and uh, and get their opinion. Um, so that's kind of the first bit. The next stage was um, when we had a proper coloured um, pre-production samples. Uh, then we went out and kind of spoke to a few retailers um, and took, that's when it was more of a beta test, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any tweaks or changes that, that you and the team wanted to make after these rounds of testing? Yeah, so the, like I said, the first one was um, changing the size of the strap through the 3D printing, um, through the functional prototype that we got from China. Um, there was a hell of a lot that changed in the cap in terms of um, the way that it would stop in a certain point because um, it was actually very difficult to get a quarter turn uh, and get the panel as a top panel that drops. So you, you basically quarter turn the, the top half of the cap, the top panel drops and you can drink through it. But what was happening to start with, it was just like an infinite turn, which is just pointless. So um, there was a hell of a lot of re-engineering to get the cap right. It was mainly the cap that's the most difficult part of the product. Everything else I would say was kind of okay then when we were getting when we were testing samples and testing colors that's when there was a hell of a lot of kind of um you know uh, paint paint testing the right paint the right finish the right logo finish um the like right finish on the the silicon strap the right finish on the cap because like i said even just color matching the component components took us absolutely ages just to get them right so there was, yeah, there's a lot of iterations along the way. We, we took our time to, to get it right, really. Mm. How did you know when you had a version that was ready to start bringing to manufacturers before, I guess, for your very first version? How did you know that, okay, this is good enough for us to start looking for a manufacturer to uh, do some production runs? Good question. So we, we had the manufacturer in place when we had the um, signed-off sample. So we, we already had them in place. So um, we were already having conversations with um, a partner that was kind of recommended to us. So we knew that um, we did our due diligence. We, we knew that they were really, really good and we have a great partnership with them. So um, that was great. So it was more, I suppose, when we had a certain sample that we could sign off with that manufacturer, 
was oh, through the whole process was probably around 12 months of design development prototyping and that moment for me was it was just a plain stainless steel version so it's kind of pre-tooled but still stainless steel it had the so it wasn't colored none of the components were colored but we could understand the functionality and it was that moment where i sipped from the cap and the flow was just perfect and the functionality was just right that you can just i'm very fussy um and I just, yeah, I, it was an instant smile on my face. And it was like, bingo, this is perfect. This is what we wanted. I'm really happy. Um, and it's hard. I'm, um, I'm quite a hard man to please. So um, it got to say, well, yeah, I, I was really happy. And then it was a case of finger on the button in terms of now we can get the colored samples, the functionality signed off. Now let's mm-hmm. let's kind of go for it. And once the colors are signed off, then it's a case of, yeah, hit the button on on production. Got it. So you, I think finding the right manufacturer can can either, or first of finding the wrong manufacturer can cause a lot of headaches for you. But you mentioned that you found the right one and have a great relationship with them. Any any tips here on identifying the right manufacturer to work with? Yeah. So um, to give you a bit of background, so the first product that we created was within diff- different manufacturer um, than w- the one we have now. Um, so we sold out of our range at a certain point but we were still in the process of moving manufacturing but we wanted to take our time to get it right uh, and get the right manufacturers on board and get everything spot on so we had a kind of a a phase of around six or seven months that we were completely offline and we had people coming to us and saying can we still buy your product and retailers saying, can we still get your product so no i'm really sorry we don't want to sell that um just if you can wait for like a few months, then, you know, we'll bring something new and you know, you'll love it and um, we'll take it from there. So um, one of the reasons that we shifted was they were not a great manufacturer. There are a lot of things that can go wrong in uh, in manufacturing in general, obviously. There's a hell of a lot that can go wrong in China, especially with, um, you know, IP potentially or just, you know, communication not being great. So we learned a hell of a lot from you know, being quite green and almost too trusting uh, with people we didn't really know. Um, so then moving forward, we have NNN agreements. We have uh, multilingual um, uh, manufacturing agreements. We have, you know, everything in, in paper. Um, all of our IP is protected in China as well. So we have really done things properly this time compared to the first time when you just don't know. You just kind of jump in. Um, but then what's really important is having that trusted manufacturer. So first time around, we went to, yeah, we went through Alibaba, which wasn't a great idea. Um, trade shows in China or in Hong Kong or in, you know, um, are a great place to find manufacturers. Um, like I said, ours was recommended to us. If you can get a recommendation pretty much on anything, but especially a manufacturer, it's worth its weight in gold. If you know they work with good people and good brands, um, the manufacturer we work with um, work with some of the biggest brands, um, so we knew we were in good hands as well there. So it's always good to understand who they work with, um, what they manufacture, and taking a look at you know the quality of that production. And we knew we were in safe hands uh, as soon as we saw kind of the quality of their output and who they worked with. Hey. Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. 
Awesome. So you mentioned too about a lot of the potentially unknown or, or hidden costs with working with a manufacturer for the first time. Can you go over some of those? And what are certain things that uh, maybe surprised you or that you can foresee other first-time entrepreneurs being surprised by when it comes to working with a manufacturer for prototyping or a production run? Um, I think a lot of people don't realize the tooling cost involved in, in certain um, aspects of, I suppose, designing and creating a product. So obviously, you need a tool or a mold to create certain components of a product. And that can cost a fortune, especially if you have a lot of components in your product. So always scope out you know, estimates for tooling, I would say, is really important uh, before you, you know, you really do a lot of the a lot of things because you could have designed something that's great and you're really happy with it. You could have paid a, a design team a lot of money to create that. And then you don't realize that you need to spend six figures on tooling something. Um, so it kind of, you know, kiboshes everything. Um, also for us, I think quality control with any manufacturing um, is really important. Um, we, on our first round of production, we had to actually um, get a quality control team to check every single individual product because we weren't 100% on the quality of their output. That cost a fortune. They had to check every single bottle before we shipped it. Um, so you don't want to get yourself in a situation where you have to have such an extensive QC process because it will cost you a fortune. And a lot of that stems from basically bad manufacturing. Um, we didn't have to do that this time. We had a, a good level of quality control where, again, it's a third-party team who go in and check you know, uh, a sample size of your product. Um, they'll check everything from the packaging, from the, you know, the barcodes to the quality of the paint finishing, from the insulation to the, the way that you know, certain things have functioned. Um, absolutely, it's through the weight of the product, the size of the packaging, um, everything. So always have an extensive QC process. Um, you know, If all goes well, it should just be a sample size of your whole production run, just a more, more of a case of like sense checking and, um, you know, it just puts your mind at ease more than anything else. Because if you have a good manufacturer, then the quality of the production should be good anyway. So, um, yeah, it's, it's making sure you have a good manufacturer is the key and most important thing in China, I would say, in terms of manufacturing. Got it. So that first production run where you were creating units for sale, how big was that? Uh, the first initial production run was for this, for the first product or for this the new range the, the first product uh so that was i think it's around six thousand six thousand units now how did you get traffic to 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 um the, the store once you got those up six thousand units how were you able to get uh I, you know prospective customers to come check out the product so um that was pretty much i think all through facebook so all facebook advertising so i'm self-taught uh i do all the um social advertising, paid social in-house. Um, so it was just, uh, yeah, everything through through Facebook and Instagram um, in terms of, you know, getting your funnels right. Um, it was all obviously back then it would all be prospective uh, uh, awareness-based targeting to really get us, our brand out there. Uh, and it seemed to work quite well because I suppose we, the initial product launched in a, in a, in a stage where, less competition in our market now there's a hell of a lot more competition and there's a hell of a lot more people on facebook you know trying to get eyeballs and impressions so uh, we had pretty good cut through some good creative 
uh, and a product that was distinct and stood out. So all of those things kind of worked really well for us on Facebook and allowed us to pretty effectively and efficiently sell um, all of our stock within a certain amount of time, obviously. Got it. Okay, so with Facebook advertising, you mentioned at first was just building awareness for your your brand for your product. How do you introduce a, a new product, a new brand to a marketplace that is you know obviously has never heard of you before? I've always said that it's kind of product is is king or queen. Um, so if you have, so what we do is focus on our product as much as we can. So the quality of it, the look, the aesthetic, then photograph it as you know. Make sure your photography and your imagery is as high end as it possibly can can be. But um, be distinct, be bold, be different, be better. It's kind of almost our mantra. Uh, and by doing that, it's easier to get your paid marketing, your earned marketing, um, and your own channels to work a hell of a lot more effectively and efficient efficiently. So, because our brand it was more distinct, was is a very different looking product. Um, and it's very high end in terms of the, you know, the premium aesthetics, the premium sort of website and everything that we, we do. It allowed us to get awareness and cut through probably more than we should have more. Uh, every pound that we would spend worked efficiently because you know, we spent, we took our time to create a very, very good product, get the branding right, get the imagery right, which made our paid for channels work better and, and sort of more effectively and more efficiently. Um, but yeah, like I said, it was, and then the creative was was very distinct. We used, you know, some really nice gifts, some stop animation, um, and some really high end photography, and it allowed us to kind of cut through uh, and do pretty well within our market and within Facebook, which is, you know, the feed everyone's feed now is full of full of ads. So you just have to be distinct and sort of be bold and be better, um, whether it's your product or whether it's your your advertising as well so it was about being distinct to get the awareness really got it so you did you hire an outside agency to to do the photography it sounded like you did you did you did a f- photos but also some animation or or video as well for the product yeah so it's all it's all outsourced we have a, a good tight-knit team of um photographers uh, animators and, and people that we work with um that gives us the kind of premium look and feel that we want i think i always think get the best images that you can the best photographer that you can obviously on a budget um but it, it makes you feel like a much bigger brand and um especially for us i mean we're, we're asking people to to spend 30, 35 pounds on a water bottle so we have to have everything looking right you know um and everything super premium so the photography is a real part of that because especially on instagram you know everything is super visual at the moment so um yeah we outsource everything just to to get the highest quality um, that we really can. Got it. Now, how do you effectively work with a photographer that or or a creative agency that you hire to make sure that the assets, the creative that you get at the end of the day, ends up the way that you want it to look? Um, so I, I kind of see myself as a co-founder and a creative director as well. So um, I kind of not storyboard the shoot, but I know what I want or what we want as a team. We've got an idea of the, of the aesthetic that we want. And again, a lot of that is looking at other brands. And again, it's not in our market, it's brands in other markets that we really like, that kind of imagery. And then we'll just speak to the photographer and say, look, we love this. Can we emulate that? Uh, what we'll do, we'll have a set designer as well as part of that. Um, and then between us, we kind of come up with 
uh, a mood board um, of what we want. And then the set designer will create, you know, the assets. But we will be at the shoot um, to make sure everything looks right um, and that everything's kind of on brand, I suppose. Um, but we're confident the people that we use, that they understand the aesthetic that we want. It's just more of us to be there to just to, again, it's just a sense check. It might be a bit of input here and there, um, a bit of direction in the styling and things like that. At the end of that shoot, do you remember how many assets you walked away with for for for, for your advertising? What is a a, a good amount that that uh, other entrepreneurs should aim for to have enough for you to use in in uh, paid advertising? This is a good question. Um, I like to get as much uh, as I can, probably too much. Sometimes I probably push my luck a little bit uh, in terms of the amount of output that I want from a shoot. Sometimes you think that can be a good thing. But what happens it is it can deteriorate the quality of certain things. I personally think now how, how it should be a case of focusing, understanding what you want from a shoot. So whether it is a still life shoot, whether it is a lifestyle shoot, whether it is animation, what we've done sometimes is try and you know squish them together and kind of have everything in one. We've had a shoot where we've had probably around 50 to 60 assets um, and I would say we've probably used about 20 of them. Um, whereas I think we could have got better quality if we had separated things, which is what we do now. So, I mean, you get photographers that are better at certain things and will specialize in certain things, whether that is still life versus lifestyle. What we've done before is try to put a still life and a lifestyle shoot in one, and it hasn't worked anywhere near as good as focusing um, particular shoots. But I would say you would want at least 20 um assets that you can use from a shoot got it okay so now once you set up those facebook ads with those assets that you have where are you where are you driving them is it just to a product page or like where on your website do you drive uh, paid traffic to uh it's a bit of both um so it depends so if we're using a carousel ad and carousel ads can work really really well so that's where you show like a collection um of products that you have on sale so for us, it works well because um, we have currently we have four products. They're all the same product, but just in different colors. So we just have the four in a carousel with color match backgrounds. And it, it's really distinct and it works really well. It's, it's minimal, but it, it creates good cut through. And what I've noticed on Facebook, if you get it right, um, what seems to happen with carousel ads is um, you get a hell of a lot more impressions than a, than a normal um, kind of one unit ad. So that, that could work quite well. And what that does, that drives straight to that product page of that particular ad. So it's almost like a shopping um, page, a shop listing page on Facebook. So you can select the ad, the product you want to look at, click on it and go straight to that product page. That works well because there's less friction. But the problem is it doesn't allow you to do the kind of mid-sales point, which is sell people into the brand unless they're going back into the website, then it's a bit counterintuitive. So we have a combination. We have like a carousel ad that goes straight to the product page and it's a lot less friction in terms of that purchase journey. But then we have um, some animation which drives just straight to the homepage. So what that does is allow people to flow through, understand the brand, understand what we do in terms of our sustainability initiatives. Um, they can see more images of the product and why we're better and the spec of the product. So it's a combination of, of both, really. Then we have retargeting ads um, at two different levels. Actually, we have, I think, three different levels at the moment. 
Uh, one is um, uh, just people that have clicked on the website um, and that optimizes for purchases, uh, abandoned carts, and then a reach-based one, which is um, you know a much more cost-efficient in terms of hit more numbers. Um, it's more kind of mid-funnel retargeting, I suppose, um, to hitting more people that have sort of clicked on the website. So there's there's quite a few layers in the, the way that we do it. So you, I think I think when especially when you're just starting out, when you have a smaller budget, I think it's easy to default to think transactionally. Like, how do I get the sale now? If I show an ad now, they click on it. How do I get the sale within the next minute? You're saying that sometimes it's it's or for you, you also have this desire to sell them into the brand. Can you say more about that? Like, how if you were to do that and sell them into the brand first and the mission and the the values, where do you take them in and what kind and what does that look like once they arrive? Uh, yeah. So there's. I suppose there's a couple of things. So we we try not to greenwash people by talking about plastic pollution all the time. That's a real problem at the moment. There are there are too many brands that are just talking about that and actually don't have a great product. Um, so we try not to talk about plastic pollution too much. We do on our ethos page, um, and I suppose firstly it is the design principles and the des- we we sell them into the design of the brand um, and why it's better why it's tangibly better and also kind of a more of a slow fashion look at it so you buy better you buy less which means that you are there's less resource uh, natural resource being used there's less carbon being emitted because you're buying it once and then you keep it because it's made so well so that's one thing in terms of the sustainability story then the other part of the sustainability story is the fact that we um help we uh, help with the prevention and collection of single-use plastics in the ocean um, through partnership with Plastic Bank. So we donate to them as part of each purchase um, to help kind of almost offer a root cause solution to plastic pollution. Uh, we also um, offset all of our carbon through um, wind farms in, um, is it Luzon, I think it is, in the Philippines. So there's there's a, there's a lot of different elements to it. So we drive people to the homepage. That's more about the aesthetic and the design of it um, and the slow fashion and the quality. Then, if people want to want to actually find out more about our um, sort of ethos, then there's another page that talks about the more kind of you know us giving back and helping in terms of offering a root cause solution to plastic pollution. So there's a couple of ways we look at it, but we don't oversell it. We don't we don't hammer people with it. There's nothing about it in our adverts. Our adverts are just here's the product, here's why it's better, and then we sell them into the kind of sustainability you know initiatives um, and the slow fashion element within different pages on our website. Mm. So I want to talk about the the almost like cost benefit of this approach to sell them into the brand, sell them into the, to the values that, that you hold as a company, as a brand first. So when you, when you do that, obviously the, the con to that is that they may not buy on that on their first visit because of the additional friction that you mentioned before it, what is the the benefit uh is that does that create like a a, a more a, a more valuable customer over time like what does it do for you as a business if you are on the first touch point selling them on the brand and the values first personally for me i think every brand should have um a purpose um i think that's really key moving you know, currently moving forward more than ever that brands with purpose will resonate more um, with the right consumers um, and will stand out if they're doing good. So for us, it's not just a branding exercise. It, you know, we want we want to do good um, as I suppose people as a brand 
it's it's really important to us. So it's it's something that we would always want to do. We always wanted to do as part of setting up a, a business. Is um, you know how do we have positive impact on um, things around us? Really, you know whatever that can be. So we always want to be a positive company in that way. Um, so for us, it's just that this is this is our brand. This is what we do. Um, and you know, people like it because it kind of makes sense. And all of the initiatives that we do make sense in terms of the product that we have, because it is naturally we are producing single use plastic by people buying our product, but then we are also offering another solution. So, um, first and foremost, I think brands need to have a purpose at the moment. Um, you will see more and more brands doing it. I think, you know, pretty much all brands will be doing it now. Um, but I think consumers can then understand that they can trust you as a business. You're doing the right thing. So that trust can then can lead to more sales um, and, you know, uh, more repeat customers. They will talk about you more to people. So more word of mouth. So, yeah, there's a there's a variety of ways of looking at it. But first and foremost for us, it's, it's for our, us personally. We would always want a brand to start a brand with purpose. Got it. So not necessarily like a profit and loss statement decision that you're making here. This is more about almost for, for personal reasons, which is obviously totally valid. So you mentioned to us that um, one of the best ways for you to drive more more new customers is through PR. So you've been featured in uh, British GQ, Wallpaper Magazine, The Guardian. How are you able to land that kind of press? Uh, yeah, we we did quite well. Thankfully, the, the press... Um, behind us quite well we used a, a pr agency so we we did outsource that um so a really good team and we used them again for the launch of our new product um and also because you know again uh, being a brand with purpose it does help um because it does give you that story it does help with the press it gives them something to talk about um to get and, and also having us again i've always said if you have a really really great product that really helps with that earned media which pr is and people talking about you because it's like okay we can see this is tangibly very different okay this is why it's different okay this is the positive things it does uh, okay i can talk about that it gives me more to talk about as a journalist so yeah because yeah we use a pr agency but we because of what we're doing and how we're doing it i suppose we're giving them more to talk about um our press releases then have more information um more of a story and it allows journalists to kind of get on board with it, really. And what we do also is um, certain journalists we will send out sample to. Um, so all of the press that you see, they would have had a sample of our product, which is great for us because it means that they love they love the product and then they talk about it. So, um, again, it's kind of um, it leads back to having a great product. Right. I think I think there's a good point about I think press at the end of the day is just a retelling of your your story, your original story of your of your brand. So if you don't have a story or your story is only like I have a product and there's nothing kind of bigger than the product, then it's really hard for press to do their job because there's nothing to retell, right? And it's to a certain degree. So I think that's important that the benefit of having a story, a brand story of why you're doing it makes the job easier for, for press outlets to, to, to tell your story because they have something to work with. So I think that makes a lot of sense of how this kind of all ties together. Now, you mentioned to us as well that uh, one of the another great way for you to drive traffic is through these kind of best of guides. So, can you say more about that? Like, for anyone out there that might not know what that is, can you explain what are these kind of like, you know, best guides? 
Yeah, so um, for us, it's, it's when people are searching uh, best reusable water bottle or you know best water bottle to buy in the UK. Um, for us, that's really important. We need to do more of it. We have a, a few um, sort of hits that work really well for us because it's a you know it's a great part of the purchase journey. So if someone is, I don't know, if you're making no idea, you know, a hat for example, bad example, but. Um, if you're in the best hats to wear this summer guide um, and it's online, the majority of people are going to be Googling what's the best hat to buy this summer. Then naturally, if you're in, um, I don't know, GQ or something, that's naturally going to rank really high uh, in terms of Google ranking. So it, it funnels um, you know, into your purchase journey, but then adds a really amazing layer of trust if a publication is recommending your product and you're already an active seeker for it, then that will obviously link to your website. And, you know, it does a lot of the heavy lifting for you is kind of how I look at it. Um, and it adds that layer of trust, sells in your product before they've even got to your website. And that's like gold. And we've had that uh, specific piece where we had a really great write-up in the 12 best reusable water bottles. Um and like I said, it, the conversion rate from that is the highest that we have from any anything in any channel because, again, it does all the heavy lifting. It tells you about the product, but it's been recommended by a key journalist. So then as soon as they come to your website, which so it links straight to the product page, they don't even look at the kind of ethos page and everything else. They're already sold and they've already bought it within the space of a, you know, right. a couple of minutes. Yeah, there there is there's a, no better way to sell a product in a lot of cases is, cases than a a strong testimonial and especially an unbiased one from an external party that has some kind of authority to them is like the best combination to do the selling for you. So when you when you are looking to get into more, you mentioned that one of your goals is to get into more of these best guides. How do you do that? How do you make sure you get? On the, I mean, obviously having a great product is, is like a table stakes. You have to have a great product, but what is the process of the outreach process to get on more of these guides? So we found that it really is having the contacts. So again, it's the PR agency for us. Um, I've tried personally, sometimes it works. Um, but the PR agencies have all of the right contacts. They take them out for lunch. They're on the phone to them all the time. They're emailing them all the time. So, they have the relationship. It's far easier. Then all, all what happens is um, they know when the guides are coming out, or if they're looking to get onto a guide, um, they will check with the journalist, which they probably have a, a relationship with already. Um, is it being updated? If it is, great. Can we send you a sample? So they, for us, our PR agency does that for us. Um, it works a hell of a lot more efficient, efficiently than um, a cold email from us which we tried, it, it works sometimes, but not everyone can afford a PR agency. So mm -hmm. you can go to a, a, a freelancer, for example, to do your PR, but make sure they're in the right industry that you're in because that means that they will have the right contacts. Um, so yeah, it's a case of understanding when those best of guides will be updated, you know, who the journalist is, making that contact, you know, whether it's yourself or your, your agency or your freelancer, and then follow up with a sample because they'll have to test it. Got it. Now, how do you find a PR agency that, that will work for you? Like that, that's going to be a good fit for you. It sounds like a lot of your, um, a lot of your marketing ha has been credited to finding a PR agency that, that is doing amazing work for you. So how do you find one that, that does the good work for you? 
there, so there are a lot of agencies out there and there are a lot of agencies that will charge a lot of money as well. So I would say speak to as many as you can. So um, if you can get a recommendation, that's always the best way. So for us, I think I found our agency through, I, I can't remember who they worked with, who I really liked. And I saw something on Instagram uh, and then found out who did the PR and then found out through there because the hit, the, the press hit was great. Um, actually, no, I think it was a music artist I really like because I'm really into music. And it was a piece that music artist was wearing a pair of socks that this, that RPR agency had basically sent him. And that's how I found out. And then I looked at their roster and it was all kind of high end tech, uh, premium tech brands actually, and a lot of kind of um, audio um uh, brands as well so it was kind of like okay this is interesting this could fit it's kind of a little bit different for them and high-end eyewear and things like that they do but the brands that they have are great which means that they'll have all the right contacts so spoke to them and i can i really believe in having the right personality fit as well because you can speak to people and instantly say instantly see that they probably won't be the right partner because the fit isn't there but as soon as I spoke to our team, it was like, okay, yeah, good guys. You can trust them. And also just relax, not too salesy, not too pushy, because a lot of the PR agencies are very salesy and very pushy because that's what they do on a daily basis is sell your product to journalists. So it's getting that right fit. It's finding you know, the roster um, that they have, if it's right, if it's similar to yours, which means that the journalist contacts they have will be in the right market for you as well. But I think how we did it is if you look at a brand that you like, find out who their PR agency is, then that might be kind of a, a good way of doing it, an easy way of doing it. Got it. I, I like that approach, which is to look for people that are getting the results that you want and working your way backwards to find out who's getting them the, getting those kind of results. And you mentioned too that as, as, as with anything, with any kind of business relationship, that personal fit is so key. You don't want to dread picking up the phone or having meetings with someone that you depend on so so uh, so much for the success of your business. So I want to talk about some of the, maybe some of the apps or tools that you rely on, more, more of the kind of products that you rely on to help run the business. Can you tell us some that you recommend? Yeah, so we use, we've recently set up uh, Yopo um, for reviews, which, we, you know, you, you certainly you really need reviews and verified reviews on your website. So we set that up a few months ago. It's it's good it's okay um it can be quite clunky sometimes but it does what we need it to do so that's okay for now um we use mailchimp at the moment again i think that's probably something that we could probably phase out um we're looking at other alternatives as well so um we we probably need to be stronger on our app game to be honest in terms of um our shopify platform um, they're kind of the main ones that we use at the moment then we've got certain bespoke ones that allow us to add certain features um, to the to our pages that aren't you know standard on Shopify, so there are kind of apps built in by our developers um, allow kind of you know certain flows and certain elements of the product. But I'll be honest, I'm not I'm not that techie to to remember the name of it. So uh, yeah, I think we could be a lot stronger on our app game. But I think for us, the the key for you know Shopify is it was it's so great to to set up to 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 design to make it as bespoke as we wanted to but then the back end is super super easy to use that we can look at it daily and update anything 
we have a designer and a developer that we use to get to get things looking as we want it so um yeah it's more i think for us we would need we need a few more apps that we're looking at um it's more the aesthetic at the moment um that we've kind of got in a certain place got it awesome so stay60.com is a website s-t-a-y-s-i-x-t-y.com and i'll leave you this last question looking forward what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge that you will face uh the biggest challenge for everyone um and especially small businesses is the new norm after covid how does that look how does that change consumers uh purchasing behavior um, you know, are they going to? Will there be less consumer confidence? Um, how does that affect digital you know, sales? Um, how do you optimize the DTC side of things because retail is going to be a completely different ball game? So there's a hell of a lot that comes out of you know what has happened with COVID nineteen um, and how do we respond to it as um, small businesses, as digital as digital native businesses. Um, how do we best optimize for the new norm, I suppose, uh, and make the most of people buying digitally more than they ever have, but having less consumer confidence. So, yeah, I think it's it's mm. seeing what happens in the next few months and after COVID-19, understanding what the new norm really is, and then, um, yeah, seeing how you can really respond to it from there, really. Yeah, I'm sure that's a, the same thought on a lot of entrepreneurs' minds. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience. Thank you so much, Kripal. Cheers, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.